You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or to check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. For our listeners who are joining us through our new blog, Tajin, the Maghreb blog and podcast, uh, this is a, one of our first episodes that's being co-released with the Ottoman History Podcast, and my guest today is Mustafa Minawi, an assistant professor of history at Cornell University, where he's the director of the Ottoman and Turkish Studies Initiative. Mustafa is a graduate of New York University. His first book is on the way. It's coming to fruition. It's got a very nice title called Lines in the Sand, and uh, broadly speaking, he's dealing with this uh, frontier region in the Hejaz and in uh, East Africa and North Africa, where the Ottoman Empire sort of interfaces with other empires that are all competing for influence in these frontier regions. Mustafa, I'm glad to have you on the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. And actually, I'm really glad to see you here with your position at Cornell now, your book coming, because we met a few years ago and you were kind of in the in the heat of this dissertation thing, which I am now doing, and it's it's good to see a, a success story, someone who survived to Thank the end, you. actually in the flesh. <laughs> I witnessed firsthand that you were alive that, a few years ago, and you're still here today, so it's great to see that. Yeah, minus a lot of hair and teeth, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you're looking young. Thank you. So today our discussion is going to be focused on a, a section of your book that you're developing uh, called The Ottoman Scramble for Africa. This is a really provocative title. Mm-hmm. Uh, what it would imply is that the Ottoman Empire is part of this colonial game in Africa. I know for a lot of our listeners who are familiar with some of the literature on the notion of Ottoman colonialism, which is a very much, uh, a very much debated term, this is going to be a very interesting discussion. So clearly you're going to be dealing with the scramble for Africa in a different way than maybe previous scholars have, but could you set up what this notion of the scramble for Africa is and how it's been conventionally written about and where the Ottomans' place is in that story? Sure. Um, The scramble for Africa has always uh, been written about almost exclusively from the perspective of uh, the different European powers that were trying uh, to figure out a um, civil way, and I'd, I'd say this with um, rabbit ears, a civil way um, in which to um, divide the rest of what's left of non-colonized uh, African land. So, um, um, as you know, they uh, meet for about eight months, I believe, in, in Berlin with the purpose of uh, putting together uh, the, the the main outline, or really, I should say, the laws that will govern how they will divide what is left. The reason uh, what I'm doing is new is because the Ottomans, people know that the Ottoman Empire was part of the uh, Conference of Berlin, 1885. We usually see them represented as on the side, Very kind of much being so. out of the conversation. Uh, on the side or in really in the background, I, I actually um, went on a hunt of, of uh, uh, drawings of, that represent mm-hmm. that, uh, usually with 
the, the main players at the front. And in some cases, you'll see the Ottomans, usually it's represented by a few men with fezes on the sideline. In other cases, you have to really zoom into the picture to find one person with a fez. And they usually look really sad with their right. head down or something like that. So it's, it's quite, quite uh, interesting. It's kind of funny. Um, uh, but uh, what I'm arguing is that uh, for the Ottomans, their participation... And the uh, Conference of Berlin, 1884, 1885, and then and them signing on to the Act of Berlin uh, was something that they took very seriously. And it's something that they uh, used to their advantage as they started to forward an expansionist policy in Africa, uh, which is basically what, what we're going to be talking about now. So the, the Ottoman context here then is the Hamidian period, basically the heart of Abdul Hamid's reign. And Correct. we do have some you know, a growing body of literature on Ottoman expansion or expansionist mentality during this period, of course, with Yemen. There's been some good work done on that recently. Mm -hmm. And even some of their plans in Central Asia, we even have stories about Ottomans in China, South Africa, etc. Uh, the region you're talking about in the scramble for Africa is then, I guess, the, the, the borders of what then was the Ottoman Empire, which is, you know, Trablusgarb and Benghazi. They're still part of the Ottoman Empire correct? as of the 1880s. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess you're saying that the Ottomans see themselves as having a stake in this imperial or colonial game in Africa. That yeah. they, they have a territory. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, what, what this conference, their uh, involvement in this conference allowed them to do is to um, take apart by using the legal um, terms that were set out in that conference because they are uh, they didn't have the same resources naturally. I mean, they were much sure. much weaker um, economically, militarily. If I, you know, all of these things, they did not have the same resources that the French and the British had in order to exert their power or or or, or claim uh, um, new tracts of land in Africa as colonial possessions. What the conference allowed them to do is is to use this language of international law um, as a way of claiming uh, land without having to invest militarily or, or um, economically in, in, in that. And so I think you should maybe state clearly what lands exactly they're claiming Absolutely. in this particular conference. But could you explain in the process how they legitimized those claims? On what basis they yes. made those claims? Absolutely. Um, Actually, the basis that they make the claims on are very important, not just for the new territories that they're claiming as their possessions, Bustamlakat, like mm -hmm. they use that term for them, but they, it's important for the way they define their relationships vis-a-vis uh, um, -vis the other uh, uh, empires in Africa, uh, their relationship to the already existing uh, provinces, in, in um, uh, uh, African provinces. So uh, Benghazi, um, uh, Trablo, Garb and Fazan become defined uh, at least in the language that they use when they're discussing this their their claim to these provinces when they're discussing it with with their counterparts they start to be defined along the same uh, agreed upon terms that uh, that come out out of the conference of berlin that's important because when you sign on to this conference, part of the con Conference of Berlin, what it did is that it first uh, acknowledged that every power that already has uh, uh, spheres of influence, well-defined spheres of influence in Africa, has the right to those lands. 
And that's one. And the second is that now if you want to expand into further lands in Africa, what should, how should it happen in a way that would not cause conflict between the, uh, the different powers that are claiming colonial land? So uh, when they agreed to, when they signed on to the Act of Berlin, it, by uh, de facto, really, they, they acknowledged France's uh, right to, to Tunis and Algeria which they haven't done in the past. Right. Um, but they also uh, acknowledge their right, to, um, uh, others have acknowledged their right to uh, Benghazi, Trablusgarb, and Fazan using the same terms, not as mm-hmm. the, uh, the place, uh, as uh, Ottoman provinces proper, but rather as Ottoman um, a right to these tracts of land as colonial possessions. The second more important thing is now they used some of the, uh, like the rest of the uh, imperial powers, they used some of the doctrines that came out of this uh, Act of Berlin as a way of justifying their expansion. And they basically, there's the two major ones are um, uh, the hinterland doctrine. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other one is the uh, doctrine of effective occupation. Uh, the hinterland doctrine, which is uh, uh, literally means hinter, uh, like the back of a uh, land, but the land in this case is any coastal area uh, that the powers already had or the, that the colonial powers already had. I should make it clear here that the coastal areas were not well defined. So if you ha- uh, they didn't define it as being just coastal areas along the Mediterranean or uh, the Atlantic or the Red Sea, uh, it could have also been coastal areas along any bodies of water within Africa, including Lake Chad or the Nile okay. and so on. It was left very ba- vague. And the land that that's power now ha- uh, has the right to claim is all the land that is considered the back land of this, of, this, uh, of this coastal area. So you can, if you're in the Mediterranean, technically you can expand further south as a way of, of and you can claim it legally as the hinterland of the, of the area that you already occupy. So for our listeners to help them visualize what this means in practice, maybe if we think of our map of uh, Africa today, we have these states like Libya, Algeria, Tunis, and they all have densely, relatively densely populated coastline, and then just like this expansive desert Correct. or hinterland that meets another hinterland of a, another state in the Correct. south, right? And so this is the process by which those boundaries were drawn, but of course the states involved are a bit different than the states we have today. Absolutely. Uh, in, in modern day terms, uh, just to define the area that I'm talking about, um, uh, it would be uh, the, hinter- the, the Ottomans claim that the hinterland of Libya uh, would be uh, everything that stretches from the Mediterranean down to the Lake Chad Basin. So that would involve parts of modern day Chad, Nigeria, Niger, and Cameroon. And the Central African Republic. Uh, so it's there's a lot of because of course uh, all of them border the, what is left of Lake Chad in the in, in in Africa. So I'm I'm a little confused actually. What you mean? Are you saying that the Ottomans were laying claim to lands as as far Correct. south as um, yes. Central African Republic Absolutely. in that area? So there's this raises an interesting question because. We know by this period, you know, Islam expanded very rapidly in, in uh, during the earlier modern period in Africa. But um, we have a sense that, for example, in Chad and in Sudan, there's very uh, large concentration of Muslim populations. However, further south, that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what role does Islam play in, in defining claims to legitimate rule, claims over these areas? 
See, that's that's a really interesting question, and it's an interesting question because there's a, a shift in in the justification for the claims that the Sultan is making at this point. So we all know about Abdul Hamid. Uh, so the things that you mentioned at the beginning, his his interest in Central Africa, uh, in uh, pardon, in Central Asia and the Central Asian Muslims, all is always. Uh, uh, coached in uh, language of, of them being Muslim sure. and him being the caliph. In this case, it's different. Uh, he's not claiming that these, this tract of land is actually should legitimately fall under the sultan's rule because the inhabitants are Muslim, which okay. for the most case they are. It is because he's 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 sticking and taking very seriously the concept of the of of the hinterland, uh, the hinterland doctrine, and that is what he uses when he's uh, he's negotiating his his mustamlakat with with other Europeans. Now, the, the Islam, of course, plays a role, but it plays a role when he is negotiating with the local um, powers in, 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 in Chad or at least in the Eastern Sahara uh, and when he's presenting the case publicly in newspapers like Iqdam and whatever to his constituents uh, in, in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so the argument of them being Muslim and they're going to be colonized anyway so it really should be us that colonizes uh -huh. them comes out in, 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 in the local rhetoric. When I say local, I'm talking about both in the, you'll see it in Damascus, you'll see it in the major newspapers in Damascus and in, in Istanbul. And when he is negotiating with uh, uh, the Senussi, uh, the, the head of the Senussi order, whose, whose influence stretches all the way down to what is now the Central African Republic, he is uh, he, he's also using not the, the fact that uh, uh, him as a sultan or as, as a caliph should be the ruler ruler of that land, he doesn't even, uh, uh, he's asking for their alliance because he, uh, they, they, would ha they have to choose between either align, aligning themselves with the Ottomans as an imperial power or, or having to make the difficult decision of aligning themselves with the British or the French who, who have been courting them as well. Well, I think that that's very interesting. It's going to lead us into a, maybe the second part of this podcast where we talk about the role of the Senussis in this Ottoman scramble for Africa. So the sense I get is that the Ottomans, in the way they understood the Conference of Berlin, they're kind of similar to the other European states in the sense that they have this vague notion that, that their empire has a natural sort of expansion or extension that goes into a certain area. And then comes the process of actually doing the real on-the-ground negotiation, I guess, putting that into practice Correct. and sort of fighting over where, what everybody uh, staked their claim to. Uh, that's where I, the the second doctrine that I didn't talk about, uh, which is the uh, the doctrine of of, of um, effective occupation, co uh -huh. uh, comes to play. Um, the effect the doctrine of effective occupation says that from this point forward, of course, the the, the great powers cannot just march in or discover. I'm doing this with. I, I wish there was somebody that can see me doing all my rabbit ears, but they. It's not that just the mere discovery of a land that allows an imperial power to claim it as uh, as a colonial possession. One would have to establish either uh, settler colonies uh, uh, or in places where it's difficult for the white man to inhabit, it would have to be infrastructure projects that tie that land back to the metropole. What the, and the Ottomans actually uh, do exactly this. So they start to build telegraph lines to the middle of nowhere, essentially, from, from the coast onwards. So they, 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 they literally put stakes in the ground uh -huh. with telegraph poles uh, that, uh, that were supposed to in their conversation with the with the um, their European counterparts are supposed to hold some weight based on the uh, the, um, the doctrine of effective occupation. So, moving into the second phase of this, which is the the implementation, you've mentioned that 
the European powers are basically showing an unwillingness to really give the Ottomans much, but kind of pacifying them, placating them. And uh, the Ottomans, maybe in these diplomatic meetings, are playing dumb, but on the other hand, behind the scenes, scenes are laying the groundwork to try to defend the claims that they're making on the basis of the Berlin Conference. So let's talk about that second phase of implementation. How do the Ottomans... You mentioned telegraphs, but there's there's political things going on too. How do they stake that claim? How do they build sort of a claim to political presence in Africa? Uh, they, like a lot of the colonial powers, particularly the French, they uh, try to figure out who is the best person to negotiate with um, in, in, in really areas of, of Central Africa that they've never had any kind of uh, influence with. I have to make it clear here that uh, the reason they're claiming this large, very large tract of land is because they've, for Traditionally, um, uh, the, the sultanates that are that exists or uh, that existed around uh, uh, Lake Chad have had very very strong ties with the Mediterranean coast. So the uh, the Mediterranean coast, uh, particularly Benghazi and of course and, and and Tripoli, through trade and cultural exchange and so on and so forth. So it's not it's not a um, it's a claim based on on these ties. Uh, of course, the fact that these sultanates are Muslim as well, or at least um, uh, they uh, helps. Um, what what they tried to do, however, uh, since the, the Istanbul has never had any kind of official ties with 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 the, uh, Central Africa. Uh, they tried to get to um, the person who does and who has not just uh, official ties, but also has a lot of uh, both spiritual and 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 political capital, um, who's been working on it and building it for a long time. And that's basically the Senussi or the Snusi order. Uh, the um, I say the Snusi order because, of course, uh, he's dead by the time the the Senussi himself, Mohammed uh, Mohammed Senussi, is dead by the time this project starts on. But his son uh, Al Mehdi Al Senussi. Uh, is is very much um, involved, and they start to send out uh, emissaries uh, that try and negotiate with the Senussi as a to create a partnership in which the Senussi, with all of his Xavias uh, um, all the way down to to Central Africa, and all the people that follow him all the way down to Central Africa, would declare his alliance with with the, with the Ottoman Empire. So this is setting the the, the groundwork locally, uh, without. Uh, asking him to do anything, such as saying that I give up my uh, autonomous land and so on. Um, so uh, maybe some of the historian listeners who are interested in, maybe they, they aren't familiar with this, that this was going on. What are our sources? Do we have diplomatic correspondence between Senussis and uh, Istanbul or how is it? There are some correspondences, not by the Senussi himself. There are a couple by Senussi himself, but uh, really the correspondences come from uh, his um, um, Khulafa. Khulafa, not Khalifa, like Khulafa, not in the, what we think of, it's not the Caliph, Yani. It's Shay. It is the Khulafa. His deputies. uh, His deputies, if you will. They're called, uh, and they're the ones who had different Zavias all over. When I say they're Zavias, there's hundreds of them, literally. Uh, They organize everything from, uh, they're they're a state within a state. They organize everything uh, from healthcare to education to trade. Uh, They keep the trade uh, routes open and, and all of 
that. So uh, what there's a lot of these correspondences between them and the uh, and the uh, and the governor and between the governor and and Istanbul particularly when Benghazi becomes uh, a mutasarrafia at one point as a way that so they because Benghazi the, the what used to be um a Sanjak of Trablus Garb at one point becomes a Mutasarrafia, mm-hmm. uh, which which means is directly uh, um, uh, ruled from Istanbul because of the sensitive uh, uh, um, position it takes, kind of like um, uh, um, Jerusalem or or Mount Lebanon. Right. Uh, and the sensitivity comes out of what I'm talking about. This uh, the the tie of Senussi and and this game of uh, of inter imperial competition that is concentrated in Benghazi and the Eastern Sahara uh, makes it a very sensitive. Uh, province to deal with and uh, th- so the sources that i have are mostly sources from the ottoman uh, from the uh, the look in which there is all sorts of discussions about what is it that we're going to do about the different zavias can we tax them they were exempt from taxes uh, can we tax them much later? <laughs> they were exempt from taxes from uh, when they were started in 1856. So there's oh, the governor is continuously trying to um, uh, get some revenue out of them. And Istanbul is continuously saying, particularly Yildiz is continuously saying, you do not touch them because they are more important to us uh, uh, on, on the strategic level rather than on the uh, economic level. Um, so that's one uh, one source. The other source is um, uh, the uh, travel logs uh, that uh, were left uh, by uh, uh, one of the emissaries that uh, were sent there. He, it's already published and it translated in, uh, into Turkish. Um, uh, and it's uh, a travel log by Sadiq al-Mu'ayyad Azamzadeh, who, is, who I follow right through his travels there mm-hmm. and then later to... Uh, Ethiopia and and um, and uh, at, and building of the telegraph line in the Hejaz, um, the, uh, and uh, but the people that were watching the Senussi very closely and the tie of the Senussi with with the Ottoman Empire were uh, were the British. Um, they were obsessed by it, actually. So t- most of the context of what's going on uh, that would allow me to organize a lot of the documents I got from the from the Bashbakan look comes from the well-organized uh, queue uh, in, in London. So the Ottomans are laying this groundwork, and, and you mentioned the British, so you know it's not happening in a vacuum. Everyone knows it's going on, mm-hmm. so we're headed towards a confrontation. Obviously, there's a lot of little details that are going to come into play here as you know this uh, dispute is kind of settled over what really a decades-long process that i guess eventually culminates with the italian invasion anyway, no right? not really actually it it ends that's why my my book ends in people ask me why is it in 1902 this awkward date uh it sounds you know like uh-huh. you know you need to round it out or whatever uh the reason it ends in 1902 is really when the french come in uh the french are there before the italians are there so um uh, the french are uh, are in in what the ottomans claimed as their mustamlakat which uh-huh. is the that reach not we're not talking about the provinces we're talking about the hinterland uh they come into the hinterland in 1902 and they they that's when there's a military conflict between the french and the uh, uh supporters of the senussi with arms uh, uh, being funneled in secretly by the ottomans um and uh, but and they lose and the french flood uh that region well before the italians do Oh, I guess that's why they call it the scramble for Africa. Exactly. There's a lot of scrambling going on. Uh, that this ability of the Ottomans to play this diplomatic game, and it was a game, it was actually kind of a farce, um, uh, because they would know what's happening, they, they know what's happening in the back door, they've eavesdropped. It's, it's kind of funny, actually, when you read some of the reports. They've stolen maps of... Um, 
uh, like maps that are marked up by the French about what they claim will happen the year after, which is which completely contradicts the conversation that the diplomat would be having with the French person, his his counterpart at that point. So there's a bit of a farcical thing happening that everybody knows is happening, but the only reason it it's maintained is because of the competition between the French and the British. The French wanting to come from uh, from the east and the British wanting to come from the west to to claim this very important uh, intersection of trade routes uh, area the only time we know the ottomans know that they're completely out of this game like they need that there's no hope for them is when the french and the british finally agree over after the crisis of fashoda which is in 1899 the the jig is over essentially and uh the, there's a reshifting uh, of of strategies and policies that the ottomans do including the militarization of of the of the senussi because it becomes they kind of withdraw and 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 support the the local resistance if you will uh but the, but that's when it all ends. So I'm going to be a little cynical here. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that given how much information you're saying the Ottomans had, they knew that there was back backdoor deals, they had these maps, they're aware of their the weakness of their position, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And likewise, these regions were never important for them as actual regions of the empire. These are These are supposed to be, you know, this is an expansion, but it's an unlikely expansion, we can say. What's really going on here? Why are they involved in this game in the first place? Well, I mean, we have to look at it in the context of the post-1878 um, disaster. I call it the Nakba, the Ottoman Nakba. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> parallels, yeah. Um, and uh, d- uh, d- there is a reformulation of... There is some soul searching and an acceptance of a new phase that the Ottoman Empire is going to go through uh, from that point on, and it's it, there is a this there is it seems like there is this shift in policy in which we we accept our position of weakness and use it to our advantage. This is one of those places where they thought that this could work. Um, how how does that work? I mean, what, what do you mean? mean? How do they use their weakness to their advantage? Oh, uh, what I mean by this is that they uh, they. They st- all of that um, military showmanship and, and uh, claims of, of grandeur that they that was always part of the uh, uh, um, Ottoman Empire up until even during the Tanzimat period uh, in their wars against the Russians in which they were defeated miserably uh, kind of uh, is put aside and it's there's a decision about whether uh, not just whether we're gonna stay we're we're going to stay bankrupt and focus internally on what we need to do to to survive for as long as we can but rather how we're going to how is it that we're going to now uh, maintain not maintain our status but actually uh, re reinvent ourselves as as still a global empire but using different methods so th- this is a demonstration of using these different methods uh, that the uh, that that Istanbul really latched onto. Um, what do you mean by different methods, though? The only thing they had on their side is is uh, words on a piece of paper. Um, so it's about using these words on a piece of paper to try and uh, and play the game according to uh, someone else's rules. Um, in this case, the great powers rules. Um, so the great powers set the the, the, the the Ottomans had two options: either uh-huh. completely withdraw and concentrate, accept this position, or 
use this this farce, this idea that you know we 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 protect the Ottoman Empire's position because it's important to us that the British or the French were doing, uh, use this Eastern question uh, farce mm-hmm. uh, in a way that would allow them uh, to uh, to at least uh, uh, stay in the game uh, beyond uh, the, the boundaries of, of a shrinking empire. Okay. So it's it, maybe it's not entirely counterintuitive, but it's a little tricky there. Laws, in, in international laws that are dictated essentially by strong European states, uh, the Ottomans try to play it to their advantage, which is try to hold those, you know, their their yeah. peers to those laws. Correct. Um, I mean, the worst that would happen, the, the, the Ottomans, think of it this way. They, at this point, they have very little to lose and everything to gain. When it comes to this, so they are not declaring wars. They're they're not uh, they're not spending money beyond these uh, very few infrastructure projects that they're um, uh, that they start in 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 Libya. Uh, but they are able to play off the British and the French as they negotiate with one another uh, to to uh, kind of hold them at bay for um, for much longer than they could have and without without having this piece of paper with them um, and also they are able to then uh, set up uh, a place in which they have uh, the the locals on their side uh, even after they withdraw from the game uh, t- so the French are tied up um, in this uh, guerrilla style conflict with the with the followers of the Senussi, and that includes many many different tribes, including Tuareg later on, and so on. Uh, uh, so the French are tied up, and the British are tied up, and uh, on the other side uh, um, uh, as well. That would ele- that would instead of the, uh, so the um, the the Ottomans withdraw, they are not any worse than before, but the but the but the people that they're competing with, the French and the British, are. I mean, the next phase of this for me is the reason I withdraw from 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 uh, Central Africa in 1902 in terms of my book is because then knowing what is taking place in in, in Africa, I can then reflect on what's happening uh, with with projects along the other frontier, which is in the Hejaz, um, and how these events then affect choices made there. Ah, so in in the grander scheme of things, you're seeing how this early scramble for Africa influences or or kind of reverberates into uh, more subsequent um, competition over spheres of influence. Yes, yes. So it sets out the rules and not just that, it sets out, uh, for me, I'm more, uh, I'm, my interest is figuring out what, what the, how policies are being set in, in Istanbul for these regions. And my r- initial interest is was not in Africa, it was in the Hejaz. But a lot of things did not make sense if we were to follow just the local logic of what uh, 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 the local logic, I mean, of, of what would be good without examining what's happening in other places. That's what led me to, to, to Africa to figure out some of the decisions that were being made about uh, the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the extension of the telegraph line in the Hejaz. Does that make sense? Or am I confusing people by going? That I mean, that's a fascinating connection based on what I know about the literature. This is a totally kind of different way of envisioning what's going on in the Hajaz, that part of the empire uh, in the early 20th century. And I, I really look forward to seeing the full results of that when your book is published in the near future. I think Thank that's, that's going to be an exciting work. Um, but to wrap up our discussion a little, maybe it's it's worth meditating a little bit on a, a question that's sort of hovering in the room, right? You have the Ottomans involved in this great imperial game. This is the era of high colonialism. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. 
they're part of the same state system as, as all of our people who we call colonial imperial powers. Yet there's something different about the Ottomans. Oh, there's, there's always something a little bit that doesn't fit with the mold. And what you're describing here, it sounds like an expansionist imperial power, but it also sounds like something different than what Britain and France are doing. So maybe to have a, a broader discussion about how the Ottoman fit into the scramble for Africa, which is a colonial moment. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Ottoman colonialism because oh, yeah. we have a growing literature on it. We have a lot of talk about uh, colonial vision. Um, you know, in Yemen, for example, that's that's a good case. I mean, what do you think about this term Ottoman colonialism? Uh, what do I think about it? I think uh, when when this when this question comes up, the the historian in me wants to be a little finicky and ask when and where. Are you talking about this? So um, uh, there's no simple answer about whether the Ottomans were, were you know, colonial or not, or had a colonial right. mentality or not. I can tell you, though, and uh, about the places that I looked at um, uh, that are both, uh, I mean, particularly, for instance, let's look, uh, if we look at the Hejaz, which has been written about, because it has, of course, the uh, nomadic population, nomadic population has been um, written about in the last 20 years as being um, um, the target of, of uh, Ottoman uh, colonial policies, if you will. But since we're talking about Africa and here, yeah. I'm going to stick with Africa. The reason I find that the idea that the Ottomans had uh, in any way a colonial mentality that was driving their policies problematic is because the documents show that they are very aware of the difference between doing something using the rhetoric of colonialism using different terminology for colonialism when they're dealing, and I have to emphasize this, mm -hmm. when they are dealing with their uh, uh, imperial counterparts versus what is actually happening on the ground. Um, uh, so uh, th when I talked about this shift in, 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 in Ottoman uh, understanding of themselves after the, uh, 1878 and, the, uh, and how they deal with their uh, uh, imperial counterparts, this was part of the shift. They understood the... the, 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 the um, the the value system of of uh, uh, of colonial competition they played along with the terms when they were part of the game uh, uh, when they right. were part of the uh, uh, players list uh, but that is in relation to their imperial counterparts whether that applies to then translating this to colonial policies dealing with the locals and so on or even in colonial uh, colonial attitudes or whatever you want to first of all they never actually got the land so we cannot really tell for sure right. but but it's clear from even their setting the groundwork to uh, if i mean if that was to ever succeed that they were uh, they were very aware of the difference between what they tell the Europeans and how they deal with with that on on that level with the with their with on the diplomatic level or the international law level, and what is actually happening on the ground. I mean, if we, I mean, it's kind of it sounds stupid, but if we kind of think in terms of game theory, the Ottomans, from what you described, are kind of doing like preemptive anti-colonialism by trying to fortify these local networks, right? Uh, absolutely. That is actually a great way of putting it. If uh, what, what I mean, part of the game that they play, actually the, their biggest uh, um, uh, tool when they're dealing with the, with the local population is to tell them, look what's happening in Tunisia. 
I mean, uh, that it's, this is because it's fresh. It's 1882. Uh, there's, a, there's a flood of refugees that come from Tunis that talk about the horrors and for, uh, that of the French rule and so on. So the, the, a part of what they're doing on the local level is that we are, you, are, you're, you have the choice of, of actually endorsing um, us as being, uh, as, as showing um, that the Ottoman Empire, is, uh, that you, your loyalties lie with the Ottoman Empire without having to lose your local, way of doing things they're very clear about this I mean there's different there's different times when they people suggest building Kaim Makamluks um, and in, 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 in different places in the south to try and assert or sticking flags and and they're they they refuse they reject that idea because specifically because they do not want to give the message to the local population that they are yet another colonizing power right. uh, so what you're saying makes is actually it, it hits it right uh, on the head well when, when i hear you talk most of it's like maybe the idea of the, the concept of colonialism has kind of been played with so much that it's gotten very loose we don't have a good uh sense of what colonialism means anymore and we, we don't have time to talk about the origins of right, the historiographical right. historiographical discussion surrounding colonialism but i think this moment in this place that you're looking at is one where we can kind of put the the notion of colonialism under the microscope absolutely in a time when things are still fuzzy when we can see where things are headed but it's not clear what the outcome of everything is going to be who's going to be the colonizer who's going to be the colonized we can look at what's going on on the ground and look at the competition between these different states and maybe that'll help us get to a clear definition of colonialism i mean what i really i'm encouraging people to do is is to try and really make a very clear distinction in their head when they're when they're teasing this out um uh, of the difference between the the self-conscious rhetoric of colonialism versus actions on the ground um and also at being very well uh, very well aware that the ottoman empire is not a person um what i mean by this is that it's not right. like a, a, a one agent doing this or sure, that yeah. and and uh teasing out the rhetoric based on the subject position of the person making making some of the claims that they're making. So when you start to tease all this out, which is really a kind of a hairy process, a lot of the things that we've been talking about, about the Ottomans having a colonial mentality, falan falan, will, will actually disappear. Um, that's my experience anyway, in the regions that I'm looking at, which are frontier regions, which are quite special, I understand. But I mean, it's a very complex question. What comes first, the mentality or does the mentality come when the you know sort of the means to implement this vision? I, I don't have an answer to that actually because we can't have counterfactuals. You know the the yes. empires that had colonies right, got right, them, the other right. ones didn't. So. Right, right, correct, correct. Uh, you know, uh, like uh, it's. I mean, the whole point is that, uh, that when I hear people talk about the empire as having a mentality, um, uh, I again would always um, I, I try and encourage people to not think of the empire right, as a just, person you just spent like two minutes saying it and i You're understood right. the point and i've heard it before <laughs> and yet still when is, trying to is, tease things out you yes. slip back into that logic so it's very tricky it is uh, it is it is for, for me as well yeah of course especially you know as a as a social or environmental mm -hmm, historian mm -hmm. for example i'm not actually that well versed in diplomatic history or how states work right, right. and so for it's very easy to slip into this notion that the state is sort of like a conscious uh, mm -hmm. actor because it's very convenient. But unfortunately, it's not true. It's a fiction. True. <laughs> 
Well, we've we've opened up some big issues. I know that some of these maybe are going to be dealt with in your forthcoming book, Lines in the Sand, which we're very much looking forward to. This conversation reminds me of one we had with Electra Kostopoulou, um, you know, a few months back about the strategy of, of, of how autonomy fit into Ottoman governing strategies in, in different cases, sort of turning autonomy on its head, seeing it as a, a strategy of governing. You've kind of opened up similar questions there, and I invite our listeners to check out that podcast as well if they're interested in that issue. This this uh, discussion about um, uh, Abdul Hamid um, Kinji Abdul Hamid and and his policy towards um, uh, the the frontiers and whether the, you know uh, he was using uh, uh, colonial tools or or imperial tools and so on and so forth will continue of course until um, uh, the Young Turk Revolution uh, which in which there is a huge break and a shift that is actually to me it's very very obvious but that question will will take us into World War one um, uh, where uh, the, the opportunity to, to to exercise some of these policies kind of ends abruptly um, and alliances shift World War one um, of course, this year and next year are the, the anniversaries of uh, uh, World War, uh, the centennial anniversary of World War One in the Ottoman Empire, particularly um, the the uh, OTSI or the Ottoman and Turkish uh, Studies Initiative at Cornell is having a whole uh, series of uh, World War I uh, um, as it relates to the Ottoman Empire speakers coming in, as well as a movie series. We're making students at Cornell uh, read uh, um, a fiction that is set in World War I in the Ottoman Empire, particularly to try and draw attention to um, how big of a deal World War I was in what is now the Middle East and, and uh, Turkey. Yeah, I feel like as a field, your project at, your, at Cornell is a very good example of this. People are really gearing up for some kind of big historiographical event Correct. in 1915. And I think things are going to get a little uh, hotter in Turkey, perhaps, and they're going to at Cornell. But we're definitely looking forward and, and encouraging our listeners to keep abreast of all of these different um, yes. World keep War I uh, series and conferences that will be going on. Because this is a big moment. Uh, keep your eyes peeled for uh, for announcements from uh, coming from Cornell. Well, Mustafa, on that note, we appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking Thank to you. us. Especially, I know you're in Istanbul just for a short time. I'm glad you took the time. Thank you. It's, to it was really my podcast. pleasure. Thank you for uh, inviting me. And for those of you who are listening and want to find more information, we do have a small bibliography on our website where you can leave your comments and questions. That's also where you can get access to some of our previous episodes, some of which were alluded to during this podcast. Thank you all for listening to the Autumn History Podcast. That's all for this episode. Until next episode, take care.